This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. They are some of our favorites. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song we've done a bunch, Gimme Shelter, The Rolling Stones, my personal favorite, Jesus Take the Wheel, Another Brick in the Wall, Georgia on My Mind. Let's throw to Greg Hengler for our next installment of the story of a song. Our next story of a song dates back to 1810. The hymn Long Time Traveler, or Long Time Traveling, has been performed with many variations of instrumentation, arrangement, and melody. But the version from the Wailing Jennies is performed in its most traditional way, as a trio and sung a cappella. The Wailing Jennies trio consists of three mothers, Ruth Moody, soprano, Nikki Meta, mezzo, and Heather Massey, alto. All three write original songs, but the Wailing Jennies are also very well known for their covers. These include, to name just a few, 17 covers of traditional hymns, 12 covers of Emmylou Harris, 12 of Tom Petty. Here's one. You belong among the wildflowers. You belong on a boat out at sea. Sail away, kill off the hours. You belong somewhere you feel free. Dolly Parton. Everything's gonna work out just fine. Everything's gonna be alright. It's been all The Whale and Jennies were founded in 2002. Here's Heather Massey on the group's first meeting in Philadelphia. So we got together in the handicapped women's bathroom, and, and I think we sang Amazing Grace or something. And yeah, I felt like singing with my sisters, and, and we all had that feeling, so it was sort of made to be. A guitar shop brought the three together for a joint performance. Here's Ruth. He said, you guys are going to become a band for sure. You need a name. Um, and that show did sell out really fast, so we added another show, and then that sold out, and then we started getting uh, requests to come and play shows. So, yeah, we did get a sense um, that something was happening, and um, it was a lot of fun. It was, we, were, we were, you know, pretty green and, and uh, just really doing it for the love of it, and, and that's, that's the kind of magical feeling you want at the start of something. Long Time Traveler is a deceptively simple tune that relies on the pentatonic scale as well as an odd prosody resulting in a hauntingly beautiful sound that evokes not only remote America in the early 19th century, but also its musical origins in Renaissance and earlier England, Scotland, and Ireland. Long Time Traveler is much in the vein of another story of a song we've done here at Our American Stories. Go Rest High on That Mountain by Vince Gill. Go rest high on that mountain Your work on earth is done Longtime Traveler is an expression of one who has passed away and is leaving good friends, but 
as the song goes, your fond embrace I now exchange for better friends above. It's also a song of hope for those who are still living and look forward to their eternal reward in heaven. The song is soulful and filled with longing. In fact, the sentiment that is often said most about the Wailing Jenny's cover of this traditional hymn is simply, there's just something about this song. In other words, this hidden treasure is something you can listen to over and over again. Here is Longtime Traveler, all two minutes and ten seconds of it. He fleeting charms of earth, farewell your springs of joy are dry. My soul now seeks another home, a brighter world on high. I'm a long time traveling here below, I'm a long time traveling away from home. I'm a long time traveling here. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And what we love about our music segments is, my goodness, listen to the sounds, the harmonies. And as so often is the case, and I remember distinctly that Robert Plant piece we did, you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and look at Robert Plant. As you recall, the great drummer had died, John Bonham, and Plant was lost. And he had come to America in the 60s to discover blues. He came back in about the year 2000 and discovered, well, Roots music. And he and Alison Krauss recorded some of the most beautiful music ever. Black meets white, country meets gospel. And what you get, well, you just heard some of what we get. Stories of a song. Go to Story of a Song on our website. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. The Whale and Jenny's Longtime Traveler. Here on Our American Story.
we continue here with our American stories. Pilot and world champion runner Orville Rogers trained bomber pilots in World War II, flew the B-36 on secret missions during the Cold War, ferried airplanes to remote Baptist missions all over the world, and squeezed in a 31-year career as a pilot with Braniff Airways. Orville also took up running at age 51 and ran his first marathon six years later. At 100, he continues to compete and now holds 15 world records to date. Orville was married for 64 years. Beth, his bride, passed in 2008. He has two sons and a daughter, as well as nine grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. He now lives in Dallas, Texas. And his story, by the way, is so connected at 100, still running, to the life of Ken Cooper, the doctor in Dallas, Texas, who we featured about living longer and living better. And by the way, driving down healthcare costs, doing it all at the same time. And as always, our, our better living at lower cost segments and series are brought to us by the great people at the Stetson family office. But now, let's hear the story, the life story of Orville Rogers. 1927, Lindbergh flew the first solo flight nonstop from New York, landed in Paris. He made a tour of the central United States and deliberately he circled every schoolhouse he could find and he circled our schoolhouse. My first airplane ride, that was a fun experience. I think I was about 10 or 11 years old in Sulphur, Oklahoma. I was in the yard one day and a plane flew over very low and it looked like he was going to be landing. So I jumped on my bike and rode out, and sure enough, he landed. So I went over and talked to him. He said, yeah, I'm giving rides $4. So I, I had to go back home and break my piggy bank and get the $4 out to come back and get my first airplane ride. I didn't tell my parents about it until much later. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience, and it cemented my idea of becoming a pilot. My father deserted my mother and my sister and me when I was six years old. And my mother took us back to her parents, so we grew up in the home of my grandparents. And uh, he was a farm man. They were not very loving in a obvious way. I knew my grandfather loved me, but he never told me so. But it worked out okay because uh, I eventually came to terms with the realization that that was just their way of life. As a senior at Oklahoma University, I received the impression, I thought it was from God, that I ought to be in vocational Christian service in order to really serve God the best. Uh, that was the wrong impression, but in order to prepare for whatever God had for me, I knew I had to go to the seminary. So I came to the seminary in September of 1940, and uh, I think it was five weeks later, they held the first drawing for the draft for World War II service. There was a giant fishbowl in Washington, I think it was about five feet in diameter, that held slips of paper with numbers on them from one to a thousand. 
Well, so help me. My number was thrown out number seven. And uh, so I heard from the draft board almost immediately. So I went down and talked to them and I said, uh, hey, I don't want to be in the walking army. Can I enlist in the Army Air Corps? They said, sure. So I enlisted in the Army Air Corps and was accepted and had my pre-induction physical. And they didn't call me up right away, but uh, that was God's way of turning me around from my impression that I ought to be in vocational Christian service and told me that I could serve God as well or a whole lot better as a layman. I enlisted in the Army Air Corps November the 1st, 1941, five weeks before Pearl Harbor. And we heard about it one Sunday afternoon. We got the word when they turned the radio on that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. I was in training in San Diego flying a primary trainer. After graduating from flying school, the uh, second lieutenant pilots would be assigned to different bases. My instructor in the advanced training school recommended that I become an instructor. So all of my World War II flying career, I was in the training command, instructing other students how to fly an airplane. We lost a large number of pilots, student pilots and instructor pilots to training accidents during the war. They were in such a rush to get the pilots to the front uh, because we needed them badly there. And so the program was accelerated to the point that it really was uh, quite dangerous. And I flew B-25s for over two years, uh, instructing in the advanced phase of the flying training program. And I loved that airplane. It, it was a bomber uh, and a very effective one. At the end of the war, I was assigned to training in the B-17. I reported to my training base for B-17 training about three days after they dropped the first atomic bomb. So the, uh, then they dropped the second one and the war was over. I went ahead and finished my training in the B-17 but never got to use it. And I was separated from the Air Corps shortly after that. In uh, April, of 1951, I was recalled to the Air Force, as they called it then, and I was assigned to Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth flying the B-36, our primary defense weapon against an attack by Russia. We were on call 24 hours a day. If war had been declared, we would have loaded our atom bomb in Fort Worth, Texas, flown to Goose Bay, Labrador, refuel there, and then take off from there to bomb our assigned target in Russia. The B-36 at that time was the largest airplane in the world. It was longer than a B-29 and a B-17 nose to tail. That's a lot of airplane. We had a crew of 15 people and I loved flying that airplane. I had always wanted to fly the big airplanes. We would have had no problem with dropping a bomb, although we knew what destruction it could cause. But I think everybody in my squadron, certainly on my crew, had accepted the fact that we signed up to defend our country. And while that possibly meant the destruction and the loss of life of many people, 
we were prepared mentally and psychologically in every way to accomplish that. 52 years later, in 2004, my wife and I were on a Russian cruise ship. We sailed from St. Petersburg to Moscow through the river and canal systems, and we docked on the northwest side of Moscow after stopping twice in cities en route to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of the Russian people. We had five doctors on board the ship and ten nurses, and many of the people would be street witnessing, uh, giving away English Bibles, Russian Bibles, children's Bibles, and literature. Tour. The day after we docked in Moscow, we had a clinic there in a schoolhouse on a site that was probably less than five miles from where my target was in 1952 if war had broken out. I'm glad we didn't have to drop the bomb to begin with. And I'm equally glad that I was able to be a part of a Christian group going to the very same area where my target was 52 years before, taking them the Christian witness and telling them about our Lord Jesus. Uh, it was just a wonderful feeling to, uh, to accomplish that because instead of dropping death and destruction from above, we were carrying in the word of life on the horizontal plane Word of life, eternal life, abundant life, available in our Lord Jesus. I met my wife at Oklahoma University. I had attended uh, my freshman year in another school, and I enrolled at Oklahoma University, so I was a sophomore and met her when she was a freshman. She was dating another boy when I first met her, my first year there, and they were pretty steady. It took a year or two, but uh, it, finally we became engaged. But one night I woke up in a deep, depressive, frame of mind because I had dreamed that she was marrying him and I was attending their wedding. And that had a profound effect on me for a few days, a week or two, because I just couldn't stand the thought of losing her. But he wouldn't lose his bride, Beth. And when we continue here on Our American Stories, the story of Orville Rogers continues. More after these messages. And we continue here with Our American Stories. And after flying the B-36 on secret missions during the Cold War, Orville Rogers became a commercial airline pilot and a missionary pilot for Wycliffe Bible Translators, also the jungle aviation and radio services known as JARS. In this segment, you'll also be hearing from Orville's doctor, Kenneth Cooper, founder and chairman of the Cooper Institute. We had mentioned that earlier in the opening of this story. Dr. Cooper is known as the father of aerobics and is a former Air Force colonel from Oklahoma. You can hear that story on OurAmericanNetwork.org. It's a terrific one all by itself. By the way, Dr. Cooper is also my doctor. Let's continue with Orville Rogers' story. I always enjoyed 
knowing that I was delivering people to their destinations safely and comfortably. Well, I flew for Braniff for a little over 30 years, and I loved it. I would have flown for nothing, but, but I was glad they paid me for it. <laughs> Braniff Airlines started up with a route structure that only included two cities, Oklahoma City and Tulsa. It was a single-engine airplane, but they soon graduated to the DC-3, and they were flying from Dallas to Chicago and gradually expanding I uh, started out on the DC-3, and I flew the Convair 340 and 440, and it was taken over by the DC-6 series, and then we had a DC-7, and then eventually got up to the DC-8, and uh, then to the Boeing 727 for most of my flying. But I enjoyed flying the DC-8 to South America. It was a beautiful airplane. It was a long-range airplane, we flew it nonstop from New York to Buenos Aires. Uh, it was a 10 hour and 20 minute flight, and I think it was the longest nonstop flight in the airline business at the time we were flying it in 1976 and 1977. I really enjoyed that flight, but I enjoyed all of South America. I met the founder of Wycliffe, William Cameron Townsend, in our church in 1965, and I volunteered to help out with Bible translation and particularly the aviation part of it. And I realized that while I had about maybe a dozen Bibles in my house, there were people groups of the world that didn't have one word of God's Word in their own native language. Just felt like I could be of service in God's kingdom by helping deliver airplanes to the translators around the world who were there aiding the cause of Bible translation by the safe, efficient transportation where the roads were difficult or impossible. Well, I delivered 46 missionary airplanes in my career. Uh, they were challenging because you don't go down to the filling station and buy a, a road map. You have to be prepared for the over-ocean flying, which means the airplane must be equipped with additional radio equipment. It must have additional fuel for the long flights, either Europe or Africa or Southeast Asia, wherever you may be going. Because you look on a globe or a map at the Pacific Ocean and you see islands scattered all around everywhere. But when you get out there and fly it, you can fly for hours and hours and never see an island. So if the radio station on that island went out, or if you had difficulty with your receiver, uh, you'd be on your own looking for throughout that vast expanse of water to find that tiny little dot of an island down there. So this is a grave concern to uh, be able to navigate successfully. I took my first ferry flight for George in 1965. About a year or two later, they put me on their board, and I was on their board for 39 years. That's remarkable. I can't believe it. And three or four years later, the board chairman retired, and they made me chairman of the board. So I was chairman of the board for 13 of those 39 years, and it was a delight to serve God that way. 
And uh, let me tell you about the climax of every missionary fly, ferry flight. When you taxi into the ramp, open the door and hand the keys to the airplane to the missionary pilot already there who's going to be flying that airplane in the work of Bible translation. I read a book by Dr. Kenneth Cooper when I was in Chicago on a layover from our Braniff Airways flight and I literally read it through in almost one sitting and it was a highly motivational book. I started running the next day and I've run a little over 42,500 miles in the last 50 years. Your feet are in remarkably good condition for a person who has run for as long as you have. A person looks good for a man of, of any age. Get real deep, so he has a two and a half inch expansion, which is very good. Don't let me push it out. Hold it real tight, real tight, real tight, and that's like iron. You have very good quadricep muscle strength. Yeah, probably at 100 years of age, you're like a man about 60. So thank you, you, have, you, you have slowed down the aging process, as you yeah. know. There's very few people past 100 years of age who can begin to keep up with you, even be alive, as you know. Yeah, my objective is to slow down as slowly as possible. Slow down as slowly as possible. And you've proven to what I've said for years. It's fascinating to know that one can grow healthier as one grows older, and not necessarily the reverse. Who determines that? You do. Here you're 100 years of age, yeah. I'm 87 years of age, still practicing medicine every day. So we're enjoying life the fullest, and our goal for you and for me both is to live that long, healthy life the fullest, and then die suddenly. We call that squaring off the curve, yeah. and you've already passed that. But you know, as we tell people coming to our clinic, we call them getting Cooperized, find all the recommendations we give to our patients, over 145,000 patients now. If you follow recommendations for diet, and weight, and exercise, all the various things that we, that we recommend, that you should live 10 years longer than the national average. Wow. That would mean you should live 87 years. I'm already 87 trying to prove that, and you're way beyond that. I started running early on with a group called the Cross Country Club of Dallas, and it was competitive but in a friendly way. And I gradually outgrew the group, outaged them, and I looked around and the world records seemed to be attainable. So uh, a little over 10 years ago now, when I was approaching 90, I looked up the world records for the one mile and the 800 meters, and I thought, maybe I can do that. So I engaged a trainer, and he coached me on starting and breathing and pacing, and I went to Boston 10 years ago. I ran the 800 meters in world record time. I think I broke the record by about the 30 seconds. But I really slaughtered the mile. I think the record was 11 minutes and some seconds. And uh, I attacked it vigorously and finished with a time under 10 minutes. I think it was 9.57 something or other. And I'm still the only man in the world that had run a 10 minute mile after the age of 90. I like that. In March this year, I attended the National Indoor Championship meet near Washington, D.C. It was a track and field meet. I entered five running events, ranging from 60 meters up to 1,500 meters, and uh, had no competition, so I got gold records just by showing up and suiting up, starting and finishing. 
But the uh, icing on the cake was that I was able to set five new world records, one for each of the five events that I entered. So I now hold or have set 18 world records. I think two or three of them have been broken. But I have set 18 world records officially. And what a story this is, Orville Rogers' story. And we'd like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to their wonderful documentary, Flying High for the Glory of God, The Orville Rogers Story. Check out their full documentary and the 1,900 more titles of uplifting family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. That's visionvideo.com. When we continue more of the life of Orville Rogers, Orville Rogers' story continues here on Our American Story. And we return to the story of Orville Rogers and his doctor, Kenneth Cooper, founder and chairman of the Cooper Institute, located in Orville's hometown of Dallas, Texas. But both of these guys, well, they come and hail from Oklahoma. We will also be hearing from Orville's daughter, Susan, his sons, Rick and Bill, and his great-grandson. Let's begin with Dr. Ken Cooper. Well, first of all, it's not that amazing anymore. People live past 100 years. They're becoming uh, quite, that's quite readily known. But people past 100 years of age who are still competing athletically in running events, that is extremely unusual, one out of a million, I would say. So Orville has, he's had his problems. He was a marathon runner and all when I first met him at age 54, that's 46 years ago, on his first examination here at the clinic in 1971. I followed him every year after that, too. But what has happened is he's had some medical problems back in 1993. All of a sudden, we discovered he had severe coronary disease without any chest pain whatsoever, when he had a six-vessel coronary bypass procedure. That was 1993. Then in 2011, he had a major stroke that occurred in 2011. But he's only incapacitated for 30 days. He's out back running again. One aspect of my running is that it gives me a platform to speak a word for my Lord Jesus. I became a Christian when I was 10 years old, and I've tried to follow my Lord for 90 years now. I've run in races where people alongside me or near me would falter just a little bit as they approached the finish line, uh, two or three or four or five yards. It seemed like they were saying to themselves, there's the finish line, I've made it, and they kind of relax and slow down a little bit. That's not my style. I want to power through running uh, to the very end of the tape, and it served me well. A year ago in Albuquerque, I was running against a 94-year-old man, and he got off, there's just the two of us, in a 60-meter race, and he got off to a fast start. I don't have fast twitch muscles, which enables a, a fast start in running, and so he was three or four yards ahead of me almost immediately. But I kept plugging away and uh, maintaining the pace that I thought would be applicable to that distance. And he must have slowed down because I certainly wasn't speeding up, but I began gaining on him at the halfway mark and at the finish line, I leaned forward just enough to beat him by five hundredths of one second. (laughs) 
the magazine already came out with a statement that we had met five times after that race, and I, I beat him every time. And uh, I don't want to slow down at the finish line. I don't want to be disqualified by not serving my Lord well all through every day of my life. I want to finish strong for my Lord, don't you? I hope you enjoy life as much as I do. I love life. My son was a Marine helicopter pilot and was on a rescue mission in Vietnam in 1970 and was killed when they, they ran into very adverse weather conditions in the extraction process. Well, God can use any experience of life to the benefit, and one of the good things that came out of this was the realization that uh, Curtis lived a wonderful life, and he died in service for our country, and uh, if, if it had to happen, that was the best way he could. My advice to anyone in a similar situation would be that God is still in control. He knows what is happening, and he is in control, in control and he can be relied upon to supply you comfort and uh, help anytime it's needed. My wife and I served for 13 months in Tanzania. I had a beautiful uh, Cessna 210 flying over Tanzania, which is as big as Texas and part of New Mexico. The interesting part about that trip was when we left Honolulu, I had not explained to my wife that radio waves are straight line, just like sunlight. And once you fly about 100 miles or so, depending on your altitude, away from your home departure station, you lose radio contact. Uh, so I was halfway to Johnston Island or so and trying to work anybody that would talk to me, and nobody would talk to me. I wanted to make a position report. And I uh, sensed that maybe she was getting a little bit nervous about the situation because I was using the loudspeaker and she could hear the conversation. So I took off my headset and laid it down and put my bike down. I reached over and gave her a big hug and I said, Honey, when you married me, did you ever think you'd be having this much fun? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't hit me. Uh, I'm free to express my life story in that manner. If my viewers understand that I'm doing it as a Christian witness, I want no glory for it. I want no commendation for it. But uh, I found out early in life that it would be wise to save enough money as possible and invest it so that in the future I could be a vehicle for helping God's work, bringing his kingdom to earth from heaven as he asked us to do. And so I got interested in investing. I invested in the stock market, in land and uh, oil and gas, and God blessed in that. Uh, if people ask me, how did I do that? I say, I did not do it, God did it. And it was our privilege, and I since my wife's death, to give away over $35 million to God's work. I knew that Dad flew a lot, but it never felt like he missed important things like piano recitals or football games or anything. And he's getting us back for that now. By going to, <laughs> we're going to his track meets and interviews and banquets and birthdays. So. 
Every day is a gift, and I think he is the one that really epitomizes that. I mean, he knows it every day, every, day, every year, and it just it, it gives us a, a great sense of uh, purpose and uh, looking toward the future, and I think that's the way he's made it from 90 to 100 for sure. I remember when he first realized he couldn't run a sub-10-minute mile anymore, and my friends in their 60s all say, I can't run a sub-10-minute mile, and they're in their 60s. But they can't remember when they could run a sub-10-minute mile, so it's pretty fun. We try to keep him humble. I mean, I tell him all the time that I could do what he does and be in the newspaper the next day, too. But the only problem is I'd be in the obituary section, and he's in the sports section. One of my big memories of my dad and my mom was looking in their bedroom and seeing him on their knees praying. It was regular. And... Not for show. They were prayerful people and made it just a core to their life. And they're always reading the Bible. And they prayed through the missionary prayer list, which I don't know if it bothered them. It made me kind of crazy sometimes. But they prayed for every Southern Baptist missionary on their birthday throughout the whole year. It's pretty amazing discipline. I'm in track right now. And I just think that I, it's great having a grandpa that is 100 running track. So. <laughs> when I run, I just think about them a lot, so I just think that's great. My dad and my mom wanted to be with us on vacations. There's a lot of people that talk to them and say, what? You know, that's not a vacation if your kids and grandkids are there. But he started it over 30 years ago, and we go on fabulous trips every summer, and it's a job now coordinating that many people. So it's over 30 people for over 30 years uh, going together someplace crazy anywhere from the North Pole to Antarctica to Europe or Africa, but they've been an amazing way for this family to bond. So I enjoy reading and uh, studying Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, because Paul speaks there of running as being a metaphor for living. And uh, I think I can quote it. Uh, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us cast aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and henceforth is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what a story we just heard. What a life well lived in his hundreds and still running. And running being a metaphor for life. We'd like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to their wonderful documentary, Flying High for the Glory of God, The Orville Rogers Story. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 more titles of uplifting, family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. His faith, a fundamental part of his life. The kid's vision of the parents sitting in that room, kneeling down and praying for other people. And we tell their stories here on this show, just as we tell everyone's stories. Faith, no faith, no difference to us. Beautiful stories are beautiful stories. But he gave away $35 million that he'd made investing because he didn't think it was his. My goodness, what a story to tell by itself. And what a heart, what a generous heart. And by the way, that he lived so long, you know, we do a lot of these stories about living longer and cutting down costs and living better. Uh, these are stories that the Cooper Clinic has turned us on to, Ken Cooper's life work, and the work with Chuck Stetson and his family office. 
better living at lower costs. And my goodness, this story is a metaphor for all of those things, teaching us all how to live in the end. Orville Rogers' story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, and they work hard to help small business owners, well, grow their businesses and become bigger businesses and live apart of the American dream. And today our own Alex Cortez brings us this story. What is it to have a father? Ernesto de la Fe didn't know because his dad Ernesto was imprisoned by Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. Not for anything that this famous journalist did, but for just one belief of his, that communism is rotten. He didn't know his dad until he was an adult. He was a fairly well-known person, so a lot of people would start coming to the house to visit them. And then after the third or fourth day of being in in these meetings, I was probably around 24 then or something, so I was already older. And I said, wow, imagine what it would have been to grow up with this person because he was so eloquent. I said, my vocabulary, the way I would talk, the way I would think would be so different because you saw it was a totally different level that you never saw ever. At least I didn't see people speak in that fashion without coherence, without conviction. I said, well, I didn't miss out on things. I never knew I had missed out on anything until I realized what it would have been if I would have had my father with me. I left Cuba when I was a baby. I left with my grandparents and my mother stayed behind uh, when my father was put in prison, basically, he said to my mom, look, don't worry, I'm only going to be put in prison for a few months because I'm a rabid anti-communist, and obviously Fidel knows that. But what if everybody else starts running away? Who's going to defend the country? Who's going to stay here? Around 200,000 Cubans left their homeland during this time and came to South Florida. But don't worry, because in six or eight months, the U.S. is going to realize that they can't have a communist regime 90 miles away from its shore. So my mom stayed just in case they sent me and my sister to uh, Miami with my grandparents. My grandparents from my mother's side. And really that's kind of was the initiation of me coming here to the U.S. and my mom staying there. She stayed there and then after four or five years she realized that 
it's not going to be six months, you know, six months passed, a year passed, uh, and realized that it's not going to be that quick and that soon. And that's when she made a determination that she just should be with us, raising us. And uh, she found a way to leave Cuba. And the interesting thing is, because this is a story really of a lot of different heroes, right? And heroes, not just my father, who I believe was a hero, but my mother, faithful wife, uh, working nights, the night shift. Her hours were probably, I think, from 7 to 7, you know, or 7 to 5 or something like that. Uh, I remember she would leave home around 7, and then she wouldn't come back until I was ready to go to school. You can say, okay, after two or three years, you realize your husband's never going to come back, or you don't know how long, you have to have your own life. But no, he's got 10, 15, 20 years and never dating another man, you know. And these are very attractive, good-looking people, right? I remember when I was maybe five or six or seven, when I would walk down the street and all these guys would whistle at my mom because she was so attractive. And she still decided, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to have a commitment to my marriage. And, and I think more than that is really an example to us, right, to show this is the way you need to live, live your lives. And my grandparents, even though they're from my mother's side, not from my father's side, said, look, we need to go back to Cuba. We can't leave him in prison alone. He needs someone to receive food whenever we can take it to him, to you know, take care of him. At least we can't be with him, but we can go on whenever they let us go visit him. So it's really, that's another kind of year where my grandparents left freedom here and went back just because they felt a sense of service and commitment and obligation to someone who had sacrificed their lives. So there's a lot of different heroes. If I would say another hero is my aunt. My aunt actually came with us and my grandparents. And uh, so she never married. And the reason she never married, she goes, if I married, no guy's going to let me take care of you guys. I mean, she never told us that, obviously, but that's what I found out later on. And because there's a woman, my, my sister, she didn't want another man being in a house, even if the guy would allow us to be there with him. So it's a self-sacrificing thing. She, she was working during the day, my aunt. So to make sure that nobody was alone, and my grandparents went back, my aunt worked during the day, and my mom decided to take the night shift. So these are all these stories that really are, are incredible. And you're talking about people that had choices, right? Because you can say, if you're in prison and you can't get out, it's still being a hero because he stayed there knowing that he was going to be in prison. But my mom and my aunt and my, they had self-imposed prisons, which is even harder, right? Because there you see the world. There's no cages. There's no fences. There's, you can actually do what, you know, you're young still enough because you know, you're still in your mid-30s or so you still have the ability to kind of take advantage of, of a new country, a new opportunity, a, meet new people, do certain things, a study versus having to work because you need to take care of your nephews, right? And these are people that were brilliant people on their own terms, but they said, no, I can't do that because I do that. I won't be able to take care of these people. And even though we didn't have our father, we had examples of, of courage, of bravery, of commitment, um, just to go around the circular family. So my uncle came to Miami, but he decided there wasn't enough money to be made in Miami to give us and help us. You know, so he actually moved to New York and he would send half his set wages to my mom and to my aunt so she can take care of it. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a whole community of, of families, not just talking family, but acting in a way that, honestly, I don't think I would ever have done that, you know, and, and I, um, and 
I think it would be difficult to, to even in this day and age to find a lot of people that would do that. And you're listening to Ernesto De La Fe's story about his dad, Ernesto. And it's unimaginable how we manage without fathers and without family. So much of our time spent on this show about that subject precisely. You're hearing a great story about self-sacrifice, courage, duty, obligation, and love. This story, this beautiful father-son story, continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories, Ernesto de la Fe's story about his father, about his family, and how they coped with the brutality of the Castro regime, imprisoning a man for simply, well, disagreeing with his own government. More from Ernesto. You see that the people whose husbands decided to leave Cuba and not stay they're doing financially incredibly well. They have the nice cars, they have the better homes and all that. And I never felt this way, but I can imagine my mom feeling the sacrifice, was it really worth it for anybody? She never told me it wasn't, but I can, you know, I can then look back and say, well, you know, the people who decided to do something that is more convenient, and I'm not saying immoral because it wasn't, I mean, it was a decision and you can't argue with it. They did the thing for their family. They said, they're doing basically well, they have no issues, they don't have to work at three o'clock in the morning. I can imagine you, you, it, it is difficult, right, when you, when you make that, but I was never let, no one ever told me that, right? So she, they know none of my family ever said, oh, I missed all of this out because I took care of you. On the contrary, it was never mentioned. We never felt one second being poor. I remember we slept like four people in one bed and another, and we had two bedrooms and another four people in another bed. So we were like, for me, having four people in a bed is like a, a normal thing. And actually it was kind of fun because we would mess around the kids and all like that, right, being in the bed. So we never felt that we were poor. We felt that we were great because we always had love. We, and that, that thing, I remember that when I first realized that my house was so small is when I went to a friend's house and I went to his hall and I said, this hall keep, keeps on going and going. Wow, when is this hall gonna stop? Because I'm used to like taking three, three steps and having to make a turn, right? So this is incredible, and I kept on going. And it was only really, when you look at it now, it wasn't even probably from here to, you know, it wasn't even 10 feet, but it just felt so long that I said, wow, this is incredible. So those are the kind of things that uh, revealing because you never felt a sense that you weren't living in a great place. And in a way, when you have smaller homes and smaller apartments, you have more kids around. So you get to play with them. And going back again to my father really is really the, it's a history that I know really through the words of my mom and the stories of his friends. And the interesting thing was that every time I went somewhere and it had to do with obviously the Cuban community, because I'm not an American, would never know my father who he was. But 
when they would when I would say my name, they would say, "Wow, you're Ernesto de la Fe's son. He's such a great man. It's incredible, and you should be so proud." So, in a way, I, I sometimes I felt, well, I'd rather be less proud and have him here next to me. But at the same time, you felt that the pride that said, "Hey, there's a reason why he had to do this," and hopefully guided you a little bit that there are things more important than yourself. And that's kind of because, like I mentioned, there's a lot of heroes, but there's a lot of at the same time victims and scars, right? Because you have a life of a beautiful woman, basically almost not wasted because obviously she dedicated her life to us as our mom, but could have been so much more. And so there's so many people that actually sacrifice themselves for that that you feel a huge responsibility in terms of what they've been able to do, and hopefully it, it guides your life a little bit better in terms of giving back, but you'll still be always in a deficit and a debit to, to the rest of the people, right? Now here's Ernesto with more of what it was like for his dad to be thrown in prison by Castro and his henchman, Che Guevara. At least three or four weeks in prison before he was even charged. There's no habeas corpus or anything else. Yeah, there's no charges. Uh, but that's what happens, you know, that's what happens in communist regimes. Different people kind of say about different charges. They put anti-revolutionary activity. So in other words, you were against a revolution, so you were against Castro. Obviously, there should be no reason why he wasn't given a civilian trial. He was given a military tribune. And the only reason is, is because he would be allowed to actually give more of his evidence and nobody wanted that evidence to be documented. So what people tell me is that Che Guevara wanted my father dead and uh, that he insisted many, many times that he should be killed and he should be executed because Che Guevara feared my father. Like he, he felt that he, this is one of the people that we, if we let him survive, he can really create a movement against Castro, especially when it becomes clear that he did it to this dictatorship. So there were a few people left, at least leaders maybe, people that had the following where people thought that they weren't corrupt, they had correct principles, they had integrity that could really have an impact and could threaten the legitimacy to some degree of Fidel and Che Guevara. So most people believe that Che Guevara really wanted my father dead. But at the end, Castro said, no, let's just put him 20 years in prison. And maybe one of the reasons that he didn't have to do because my father had saved uh, Castro's life. When someone went after him to actually kill him, he actually harbored him in his house, even though he realized that he wasn't a great person to begin with. But it's that kind of sense of feeling that there's a right thing to do. Uh, and sometimes it may not be the smartest thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. It's, it's incredible, right? When you see that so many people have died, have been executed, and then uh, you have these people still wear, wear Che Guevara t-shirts. I can't mention the actor's name, but I have a, an interesting story where basically there was gonna be a cover piece in a magazine. I'm not gonna mention the magazine because it'll be, a co- and there were basically four actors and one of them being a Cuban American actor. And one of the other people actually had a Che Guevara t-shirt. So this actor, who's also a friend of mine, pulled the person over. They didn't wanna make a scene. He said, look, the great thing about the US that you can say whatever you like and you can wear whatever you want. So I'm not going to take tell you to take away the, the Che Guevara t-shirt. But Che Guevara is a person that really 
was one of the key people in destroying the country that I came from. Families of mine were executed because of this. Many people were in prison because of this person. So there's no way that I can take a picture next to you with a Che Guevara t-shirt. But again, I can't tell you to take it off because this is the beauty of this country. But it really exemplifies that these people have no clue. And these are well-meaning people. You know, this is not, it's just that they may not know enough of the history. They are going with the politically correct thing to do or convenient things to do and don't understand the implications of that. Not only the implications in terms of people that suffered through that, but really the message that they're sending other countries like then, like a Venezuela, like that really, like a Nicaragua, they legitimize people who follow Castro and who follow those policies. Back to his dad's time in prison. The political prisoners always wanted to identify themselves not as common prisoners, prisoners, but as political prisoners, right? So there were times where basically they would wear no clothes. They would actually be days without clothes because they, they felt they didn't want to confirm that they, were, that they had a cause. It wasn't, they were political prisoners. But because there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of bright, intelligent people in those cells, they would teach each other things to make sure that their minds were always active. So my father would teach French to the doctor. The doctor would teach anatomy or, or certain medical things or, or politics or philosophy. So they would actually take time to kind of teach each other things to keep their mind going and to keep their mind active uh, versus just you know conform to the day-to-day -day existence of, of a prison cell. So that's kind of interesting, right, when you, when you see that, how people are have that sense that they, 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 they need to move forward, they, they need to keep their mind active because there's a greater purpose that, that they have and that it hasn't happened yet and they haven't reached their goal yet. So they, they need to be, be ready for that. So he would actually write from prison and write to us and write to my mom. So we would get, a lot of times we wouldn't get letters and then two months later we would get like a stack of letters, right? But the interesting thing is he was very creative, so actually he would, he found ways to get crayon or something, and he would actually always write, paint beautiful things around the letters and write and, you know, to keep himself, you know, because that's the way he was, naturally. So, so you would see these letters come in, but they would have holes all over the place because the censors would come the letters. So, so these letters would be, you start reading, and then there's like a, a place cut off, and then another thing cut off, and another thing cut off. So... It's kind of interesting, like what could he be saying that could be so terrible that, that you know, a country can't even accept a letter from a husband to a wife or a father to a son. And you're listening to Ernesto De La Fe's story about his father's imprisonment and so many immigrant stories we tell here. Well, people come here to escape regimes like this and they're welcome in this country. This country loves immigrants. It's an immigrant nation, for goodness sake. When we come back, more of this remarkable father-son story. A story about so many things, folks, so many things. But self-sacrifice and love and family being the primary ones. That he said he never felt poor. Well, if you have love, I made a lot of rich kids who are poor. When we come back, more of this beautiful story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Ernesto de la Fe's story and his father Ernesto's. And this is a remarkable love story, a remarkable immigrant story, and a remarkable story of, well, living with the consequences of the courage of your conviction. And we pick up, his father was imprisoned by Cuban dictator Fidel Castro for 22 years. He's finally released, and they get to meet for the first time since he was an infant and at an airport. I remember I had seen some pictures of him and all that, and, and then my mom saying, yeah, that, that's him, right? And, uh, you know, the first hour, you really don't know, because you're supposed to love him, but you really don't, you know, you love him as a father, but you really don't know him, right? So you have all these weird feelings. Am I really acting the right way? What am I feeling? And those are the kind of interesting things. But uh, I think it was just very difficult for him to realize, first of all, there's two things. I was, I didn't live in Miami. I had to, I was living then in London and in New York and all that. So I spent some time with them at the initial, but I, it was hard for me to come back and stay here. And then maybe those, some of the things I said, maybe I could have done something different to get to know him better. But also it was difficult for him because he had lost relevance, right? And again, this is a gloomy part of the story too. And the first three months, six months, everybody wanted to see him, but the second year, and the third year and the fourth year, well, the boy been told, right? And he still believes he can have an impact. But then most people realize you're not going to have an impact. That time has passed. But you could not take that away from him. You know, once he realizes that, it's a very difficult situation, right? So those are the things, you know, that, that are difficult in terms of when you're looking back and you say, hey, if it was worth it or not, because you lose that relevance, right? And, and we all do. Look, eventually we all... We're good at one thing, and sooner or later, or very few people really can sustain that relevance in anything, right? In their career, in their lives. But, uh, but yeah, so that was a, a difficult. He wasn't, he wasn't, I mean, negative about it. He kept his strength, he kept his convictions, he kept, he was always positive. It wasn't like he ended up feeling sorry for himself or anybody, but you can sense that he realized that his time has passed, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time. It's a difficult time. For Ernesto, were all of his dad's sacrifices worth it? No. I mean, and obviously he would, and he could never admit this to himself, right? Because when you look back and you spend 20 years in prison for your convictions, you basically sacrifice your family, you sacrifice your own future, your health, for something that's a bigger cause that you believe in, and then at the end, you have nothing to show for it, or other than what you committed, but really at the end, Cuba isn't free. Nobody cares about Cuba. On the contrary, you have all these famous actors going there and saying how Fidel's a great guy. So you look back and say, how can you say it was worth it? You know, what, what did it do? It, it was worth it maybe to me, because it showed me example of, 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 of character, right? But I can't imagine how it could be worth it to him. But he would never said that, right? And even, it's hard, I wouldn't think he would ever admit it if he believed it. Because it would just be hard to do, right? You say, hey, I did this and it wasn't worth it. So, and I'm now 65, 70 years old. My, the prime of my life is basically, I gave it. So, so if you were to ask me, 
If I had the ability to take it back, I'd probably say, don't do it. Why? No one else cares about this, you know? And yet if every other hero in human history didn't try to take on Goliath, we'd be in trouble. I guess our culture usually only celebrates the quote-unquote successful heroes. And that's why these are special people, right? But see, I have the ability to look back, right? So you're asking me, is it worth it now? So I have the ability to say it wasn't worth it because there was very little, very little to show for it, other than obviously what I mentioned the pride that we have in having a father like that, right? And I mean, at the end, we're blessed in being able to be received by this country, right? And obviously we have a commitment to this country, a strong commitment that I feel that all my family feels, right? That, that we can't just, you know, be, be taking space here. We need to contribute to make it grow, to make it better, to make it stronger, to help those that are less strong. And to close, I asked Ernesto, if he's been back to Cuba. I, I actually been there once and against my mother's wishes. And because she said, look, we have nothing. As long as, as long as Castro is there and the regime is there, there's really nothing left for us there, right? You know, she told me the stories when she was actually, when she finally decided that she wanted to be with us and she was actually leaving the airport, they would call us worms. And we use that later against it because it was a rotten apple, so the worms had to leave the rotten apple, right? But when she was leaving, taking off the airport and going into the plane, all the other Cubans would spit on her. You know, not just her, but anybody leaving Cuba because, oh, you're leaving, you're leaving the country and you're... So she says, why, am I, why, should, why, why should I go back there? There's no reason for us to go back there as long as, as you have Castro there who took away our lives, our livelihood, you know, my husband, your father... Why would you? Why would you spend a penny there? Why would you honor them there? There's no benefit that you're going to get out of there either for people who are there, or people who want to change the system. And that's why for many years I never went. And then one year, my son, I think he was probably like 26 then, and he goes, uh, "Dad, I know how you feel, but I want to go see the country that." that you were born in. I want to get to, to know about it. I, get to, I want to know what the issues were there. I want to know so nobody can tell me later on, right? And I think this is the time that I need to go. I would love for you to go with me uh, and share that experience. But if you don't, I understand also. So then I basically thought about it for a day. And then I said, no, if I'm going to have that, if he's going to go, I'm going to go with him. And, and I went, my wife, this, however, said she wouldn't go. My wife's Cuban also, and her father was a political prisoner also. Her father was a political prisoner from the Bay of Pigs. He was actually put on a firing squad, and at the end, they didn't shoot him because they would, they would kind of fake firing squads too, just as a mental torture around that. But uh, she said, I can't, I can't go. And she still hasn't gone. It's, 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 it's a trip that I'm glad, I'm glad I went at the end because you see what the possibilities were of a free Cuba. You know, not just in the beauty of the, of the, of the country itself, but in the, the people themselves. You know, even though they've gone to this regime and you figured, man, how can you be gone for like 30, 40 years in this regime and have any life left in you? But you still see kind of that Cuban optimism in them that you get a spark and say, you know what, if this changed, there may be a way to recover. 
this and recover that, that original spirit that the Cubans have and I think helped make Miami what it is, right? And in terms of that hard work, that optimism, that still being jovial people even though they have nothing to eat. That's in people's nature, right? So it kind of gives you a little bit of a hope for a future, even though obviously to survive they have to do a lot of, they have to lose a lot of their integrity and that's part of the problem. But at the end you see there's that nature, that the Cuban nature is still there. I mean, I remember I had a driver and um, that was taking me around and he said, I'm gonna show you the Cuban Walmart. So he takes me to this place and it was a big, big empty warehouse and it had one bag of rice. He said, this is our Walmart. So they still have that sense of humor, right? They have nothing to eat and they're like making a joke of their existence, right? So I'm glad I went and I'm still hopeful that one day we are going to recover our freedom. And you've been listening to Ernesto De La Fe's story, his father Ernesto's story. And if any of you ever want to get a taste for the Cuban spirit, next time you're in Miami and you're at South Beach, go to Little Havana, spend the day with your family, talk to those folks about the country that adopted them. Go to Union City, New Jersey, right across from the Hudson River, filled with the most incredible people. And when they see that American flag, it means something to them. And by the way, just for a final note, Ernesto came here with nothing, but because of that love, because of that family, he ended up becoming one of the top wealth managers at major companies like Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. He's now a real estate developer, only in America. This is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But the most important stories we tell are our military stories. And this one is a military family story. And you're going to hear right now from Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain himself. He shares with us a few defining moments of his life from way back when, when he was just a little boy, growing up as the son of a naval aviator deployed in Vietnam. We grew up as a Navy family. We had many gatherings where the families would get together, the wives and the children, so we kind of a community within the aviation squadrons. And I remember one day, I can remember it like it was yesterday, May 19th, it was a beautiful day outside, Friday afternoon, happy-go-lucky third grade kid, walking home from school, couldn't wait to get home, spend the weekend playing with my buddies in the neighborhood. And as I approached the house, I noticed there were about a dozen cars in the driveway and along the street. And again, not atypical for a, for a Navy family because they get together, so I didn't think anything out of it. And so I went in the house, and as soon as I walked in the house, uh, Mrs. Miles, who was a wife of another squatter mate of my dad's, uh, came up and she says, you're going to come home with me for the weekend and spend the night and with Gary and Larry, they were her sons that were kind of two of my good friends. Oh, okay, so I didn't really have anything planned, but it sounded okay, so uh, we uh, got in her car, and on the way to her house, we stopped at a High's ice cream store. High's ice cream stores at that time were like candy heaven for a kid. You could get ice cream, multi-flavors, and they had these candy racks, you can remember. They were like, you know, they were huge, as, as I remember them as a kid. 
and she said to me, Michael, get whatever you want, as much as you want. Red flag, something, something's not right here, but hey, what a great opportunity. So I remember going up to the candy rack and just stuffing my arms and glancing over her every once in a while to see if I kind of was reaching the threshold. And she just was like, you know, go up for it. So literally, as much as I could carry, I took up to the counter. So whatever. So we went and we had the, spent the night and we, you know, did what kid, little kids do, you know, during a sleepover. And then the next morning she brought me back. And I remember they used to have these big bubblegum sticks back when we were kids. They were called Big Buddies. There were these long things of bubble gum, and I remember about five minutes out from the house, I tore that thing open, I stuffed that whole thing in my mouth. And uh, she got, let me out, say goodbye, so I walked in the house, and my mom met me at the door, and she said, let's go back to your room, I need to tell you something. So we walked back to my bedroom, and she said, let me hold your bubble gum, because what I'm gonna tell you is gonna make you cry. And then she said that my dad had been shot down the previous day over Vietnam and was currently in the jungle of North Vietnam and they were going to hopefully rescue him later that day. And that was the last thing we heard for the next three years. So for those first three years of his six-year time away, we didn't know if he was dead or alive. And I remember my dad telling me, and one of the last things he said to me was, take care of the family while I'm gone. So here we were, I was in the third grade, my brother was two years younger, and my sister was only four. And uh, at the time, the Navy had told my mother for us not to tell anybody that he had been shot down, family or friends. And I was just like, how do you do that? How do you go without a father and do this? I remember wanting to think he was okay, but not wanting to think he was okay if he really wasn't. So that was kind of a balance, tough thing to, to to think through as a young, young boy. The other day I can tell you everything that happened. It was three years later, and it was the day of the solar eclipse in Virginia Beach. I remember the full solar eclipse of the sun, which is kind of a big deal. The community was really playing it up. And I had a little league um, basketball championship game, and I was a pretty decent basketball player back then, and I was spending the night with Petey Bowerman, whose dad was our coach. We had the early game, it was like an 8.30 game, and it was a championship game. Mrs. Bowerman or one of them came in the room and you know we were just waking up and she says, Michael, your mother's on the phone. I remember these words too, she said, Michael, I have some wonderful news. And up until that point, anytime she had said that, I thought, something about dad, something about dad. But it would be something like, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend, or we're going somewhere. It was like a letdown. And this time I remember vividly thinking, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend. And she says, a list came out today. The North Vietnamese released a list of 14 names of men being held officially as POWs and your dad's names on it. We know he's alive. And it was like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I went to the basketball game and I normally scored about 10, 12 points. And I think I made a score two. I could really care less what happened with the game. And then the reality set in, okay, He's alive, now what? Well, let's get this war over with and let's get him home. So I started watching the news, you know, constantly to try to find out what was happening. That was about the time where they were arguing about whether to sit around a round table or a square table to negotiate. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. 
My dad's being held as a prisoner of war, and they're arguing about what size the table's gonna be to talk about. That was a very tumultuous time of the war. And now I understand it better, you know, because I have the history of it, but Ho Chi Minh had died, so a lot, of, a lot of changes were taking place in Vietnam. But the streets were wild with protesters and the, uh, the anti-war movement, and it was just like everything was spinning out of control, and here's your dad languishing in a prison somewhere. Okay, then let me fast forward to when we found he was coming home. The ceasefire had taken place in the Paris peace talks where they were, they were negotiating, and then they announced they were going to release the first wave of POWs that were there the longest. And my dad was going to be part of the second wave of prisoners to come home. Well, the first wave came home, and that was such a joyous occasion. I can remember Jeremiah Denton walking off the plane and doing his God Bless America. It was just wonderful. And, and you knew my dad was going to be in that next wave of those that were released. And then the, the peace treaty broke down, and so they delayed the release. It was like a bad dream. It's just a horrible feeling. Then they, they finally did have the release date, but something else had happened. Because of the first wave that came out and started getting their debriefings, because they started that right away, they found out about what my dad had gone through in 1969. There was an escape attempt. The Navy psychologists came and sat down with us as children and told us, your dad went through a real rough go. There was some real severe torture. We're not sure what kind of shape he's gonna be in mentally. And that scared me to death as a kid. And I, I guess I appreciate them trying to prepare us, but that's not something you say to a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. I, I remember being horrified by what, what, what now? What else is coming? So they take off from Hanoi and we know he's on his way to the Philippines. And this is before internet, this is before cable television, just network television at the time. The plane was going to land in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, like at four in the morning, our time on the East Coast. So my mom comes in to each of our bedrooms while we're asleep before she wakes us up and takes a Polaroid picture of us sleeping before she wakes us up. I think I'm laying there with my dog with my mouth wide open or something. So she wakes us up as we all gather around the television. And my mom, she's on the floor on her knees in front of the television. And you see this plane land, and then it taxis up to the tarmac. And they bring the ladder up, they open the door, and the POWs start coming out one by one. And you see this guy, you could tell he was tall, and he's there, and all you see is from about the chest down, and he's adjusting his belt line. We call it a gig line in the Navy. You can make sure your, your shirt is lined up with your pants, trousers, and your belt buckle. It's just a Navy thing, I think, you know. And you just knew it was him. And my mom dissolves into tears on the floor. I mean, she's just on the floor, just sobbing. And we're like, Mom, not now. Not now, you gotta watch this. So she never saw it. She saw, had to see on the reruns the next day. Then he walks down the ladder. There he is, as large as life, your dad getting on free soil, you know, that was so cool. So then let me go back to the, the time when they're supposed to come into Norfolk, Naval Air Station Norfolk. And there were like thousands, probably 10,000 people that had come to the airfield to watch this, watch these men come home. They were gonna fly to Travis Air Force Base then to Naval Air Station Norfolk, but it got fogged in. And again, it's like, what next? You know, it was like one more thing that was delaying it. So what they did, they ended up flying into Oceana and then driving 
from there to the hospital in Portsmouth where they were going to be. So the crowd never saw all that, but they transferred us to the hospital. This black sedan drives up into the conclave of the hospital, and the door opens, and out pops this guy in this navy khaki, full-dress uniform, who you've been waiting for for seven years because he was almost towards the end of a year-long deployment. Large as life, looking so sharp, even though he's pretty skinny. But he just rushes to the family, hugs my mom first, then picks up my sister in his arms, and they all kind of gather around, and he says a few words, and it, it was like, yes, we're there, yes. And you're hearing a grown man recalling a really tough time in his life, almost breaking down and crying. And again, that was Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain, and his dad, Captain Eugene Red McDaniel, who flew A-6s in Vietnam, shot down on his 81st combat mission. The son gets the bad news. Three years, third grade, third grade to sixth grade. Is dad dead? Don't know. And then four more years, practically, will dad come home? Don't know. Dad does. What a great story. Mike McDaniel's story, his dad's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.